Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Our guest today is Greg O'Grady, co-founder and CEO of Allimetry. Dr. O'Grady comes from a physician-scientist background. He attended the University of Auckland, where he received his Bachelor's of Human Biology, Medical Doctorate degree, as well as PhD in Surgery and Bioengineering. He continued his training in both general and colorectal surgery, and is currently a professor of surgery at the University of Auckland. I can't wait to hear this great conversation. I'm Matt Zhao, and as always, here's your host, Dr. Curdy. All right, Greg, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have you on. Tell us, where, where are you right now? Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm a big fan of your work. So I'm in New Zealand, in Auckland. What's the weather like over there? Yeah, it's beautiful. Had a very wet season, but it's finally summer showing, so nice, nice. very pleasant. I'm super excited uh, for this interview. Um, Allometry is a revolutionary thing. I, I love it when we take a concept from a different specialty or a different area and, and apply it in GI. You know, that's uh, most of how innovation works, right? Moving, moving concepts from one area to the other. And I think I've heard you talk before about um, allometry being like an electrical mapping of the stomach. We'll get to that in a little bit. I, I want to hear your thoughts in detail. But let's start with talking about you, Greg. I think that your career trajectory is amazing. Um, you're a surgeon. And then um, I believe you've had a couple of at least a couple of different experiences with innovation and entrepreneurship in the healthcare arena. And uh, now you're the founder, CEO, this amazing company within the GI space. So tell us about yourself. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, it's been a, a really uh, fascinating ride that I've been on. So I went through medical school and when I came out, I was very interested in engineering and innovation and medical devices. So I took on a PhD that led me down a route in electrophysiology, and there I grew very passionate about the ability to make things and build things um, and the role that engineering has in medicine, which is very close to surgery, much more close perhaps than, than in uh, being a physician. And so after that, you know, I completed my surgical training and I, I'd done a lot of research and become a professor of surgery, but I really became frustrated that a lot of the research I was doing was not having a real impact in the real world, which I think is particular in medical devices. If you're not building a product, then it's hard for people to use your research in a very practical sense. And so I came to this idea that the best thing I could do was to spin companies out of um, the university and to build useful things that I hoped would fill a real clinical need that I saw in practice. And so that's what led me in, down the road of entrepreneurship and innovation. It was just purely the necessity of wanting to fill these clinical needs in a way that would be useful to patients and doctors. I love it. I love it. I mean, um, this kind of frustration is, I, I call it frustration, is what, <laughs> what I believe drives a lot of um, entrepreneur in the healthcare space. It's, it's just, um, there's a lot of uh, red tape and uh, within academia in particular. Um, and so it, it, it's amazing to see people like you who've, uh, acquired so much knowledge um, in uh, in the academic realm, uh, actually go about making their research into products that can actually help patients, which is uh, what we all need, I think. Mm. All right, Greg. So um, tell us a little bit more about you. I want to learn a little bit more about you. Let's let's go even farther back. 
Um, let's talk about maybe your childhood, your high school. Were you always interested in innovation? Were you always interested in science? Um, or is that something that maybe happened in medical school or beyond? Yeah, yeah, I was. I certainly was. I was always at that intersection between engineering and life sciences. And actually, when I when I left school, I, I went and started a physics uh, degree, thinking that I'd be more on the engineering side of the fence, and just found that I, you know, I enjoyed um, healthcare and, and patients, the idea of it much more. So I, I changed to medicine. And, you know, I also always wanted to get into medical technologies. And I had an interesting conversation with my father back when I was uh, in school. And he sort of said to me, well, you know, if you want to kind of lead these innovations and really see the need for it, then maybe you should be a doctor because then you can really have the insight that's necessary in order to to know the need that you're filling. And so those were some experiences that certainly led me into this space in a way that I think has enabled me to make a bigger difference um, with the skill set that I have. It's uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, if you want to go into innovation, go into medicine or be a doctor because you do, don't do much of that. But um, I think it worked very well. I, I love it. Um, you know, most of the people that I talk to who've been uh, immensely successful in, in uh, bringing out new technologies um, have had these, you know, in one way or another, a diverse background um, and maybe have dabbled around in, in some areas. So you, you've dabbled in, in physics before going into medicine. And so it's it's amazing to hear these stories. It's it's really nice. Yeah. You know, I saw a good tweet the other day that said, before you get product market fit, you really need founder market fit. And that really resonated with me because when you're trying to build a healthcare startup, there's no better way to have founder market fit than to have practiced and seen these patients, seen the pain point and the frustrations that you mentioned yourself in order that you're kind of building a product for yourself in a way that you want to use. And if you can achieve that, then hopefully your peers will also want and use it for the same reason. I love it. I love it. That's an amazing quote. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. <laughs> well, I guess we're both stealing it from that Twitter guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Um, Tell us the story of Allometry. How did this product come about? Where did the idea come from? Uh, so it's something I've been working on for a long time. Actually, I started it during my PhD. And you mentioned this innovation approach of taking successful technologies from one area and transferring it to another. And that's what we did from cardiology. And it was very deliberate. You know, just like the heart has a pacemaker and an electrical conduction system that drives its contractions, so does the gut. And it's, um, it's similar in some ways and very different in others. And so what I've done um, during it, actually, there was a lot of years of science and innovation before we spun out the company. But what we did was we really explored what cardiologists and um, researchers in the cardiac space were doing and tried to translate that experience and technology into the GI, GI space. And because I was a surgeon, I was able to develop these very invasive mapping technologies where we'd develop hundreds of electrodes and sheets of electrodes and we'd plaster them over the gut during operations in patients with um, healthy stomachs or diseased stomachs and build very sophisticated maps of the gastric conduction system. And so we'd really developed a deep knowledge of the ground truth of what the gut does and also a deep knowledge of how it goes wrong. And we found that that filled a lot of knowledge gaps about these diseases that were so mysterious, that have been an enigma for a long time. 
And eventually, um, my co-founder, who's an engineer, in 2019, he made a real breakthrough in that he was able to show that you could do the same sorts of things non-invasively with a device he kind of mocked up with 3D printing and made his own electronics. He really did a, a fantastic job of proving that that could be done. And when we kind of saw each other's work, we came to this realization that we needed to get together and build a product in order to get this um, technology out of the lab and into the real world. And it's been very synergistic since that time. It's been three and a half years that the company's formed. And I think we've come a really long way to deliver something that's through FDA and uh, now being used in, you know, a couple of thousand cases. So it's very exciting to have made it this far and still be at the start of what I hope is going to be a great journey. It's really exciting. I completely agree with you. Tell me a little bit about your co-founder then. How did you guys meet and how did that relationship come about? Yeah, so I think having a technical co-founder has been absolutely critical and someone who I gel really well with. And his name's Armin Garabans. He's from uh, San Diego, where he'd done his PhD in biomedical engineering, but also very strong mechanical and electrical skills. And he's a good mix because he's got a real clinical sense of what can be done. He's a very practical engineer and he's worked in hospitals and talked to a lot of doctors. And on the other side, I'm uh, very much a clinician, but I've worked with a lot of engineers. And so I think being able to speak a common language um, is very helpful. And so he had done his PhD on, on this same field, looked at my work from the clinical literature and then thought, that's a really interesting problem. I'll see if I can do it non-invasively. And it kind of worked away furiously trying to get something going and, and achieved it. And, um, and then we had a conversation and I said to him, I just got a large research grant. And I said to him, why don't you come over to New Zealand and let's see what we can do. And since then, we've been going at lightning speed to try try and achieve the vision that we both share. Oh, that's a wonderful story. That's really amazing. And it's amazing that you were able to get him down in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, You're very persuasive, Greg. <laughs> well, we both share a passion for the problem and the solution. So yeah, yeah. 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 So, you, you know, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm interested in knowing what did your um, first MVP look like? Um, the first device that you tried that was non-invasive, what, what did that look like? Yeah, um, well, you know, there were multiple steps, actually. So I'd done the very invasive work with these flexible electrodes. And then I'd started the process of trying to get to non-invasiveness. So I built laparoscopic devices and published them, um, both, you know, sort of rods. But we also had these cardiac, often copying what, what was done in the heart. So it also built these spiral catheters and published a couple of papers on them, but they really weren't, you know, they weren't translatable. And then we tried the endoscopic route. I spent quite a bit of time on that failing before, you know, realizing that endoscopic uh, mapping was really difficult, although a friend of mine is now succeeding a little bit, so that it's not off the cards. But then um, the real technical leap, as I said, was done by my co-founder, and, and his MVP was a 3D printed casing. It was done with a, a circuit board he'd bought for, um, I think it was an EEG, so brain mapping sort of technology, and he'd kind of kitted it together. And, and he's got these photos of um, patients he'd set up with 100 electrodes on their abdomen, individually placed one by one, like a kind of a, a spaghetti, a Frank, you know, sort of a Frankenstein picture of 100 wires coming off connected to this, to these devices, this shoebox or his little uh, MVP devices as well. And so it was... It, <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, when, when we started thinking, how do we turn this into a product? We really, we really started again and thought, 
of the user experience and trying to make something that wouldn't take two hours to set up with laboriously placing all these electro grids on people. And yeah, the photo comparison when you put them side by side is, is a really nice one when you see where we started with this entangled sort of situation and what we've got now, something we're quite proud of. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I love hearing these stories because uh, it's always inspiring, right? You have to start somewhere and, uh, you know, starting out with a hundred electrodes with what you <laughs> mentioned looked like spaghetti. Um, you know, that's a, that's the first step, right? And, and then uh, you get to a point where you've got this really, really beautiful looking uh, device that, uh, that you showcased in, in uh, multiple uh, GI conferences and, uh, I think everyone can go on the website and see what it looks like. Um, okay, so Greg, I know you mentioned you you had just gotten a big grant, um, and in in some ways that maybe counted it as you know pre seed capital. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about um, your funding. Um, how how did you go about uh, acquiring the funds that you needed uh, to develop this? Uh, device yeah so um you know it really helped that this was kind of my second time around so i had had a, another company that i've founded with a couple of uh, great engineers and another clinician earlier a few years ago that's called the insights company and it's still going really well it's a beautiful product um, that does reinfusion of chyme for patients with intestinal catastrophes so patients who have intracutaneous fistulas we, we have a pump that pumps that back into their into their abdomen and nice. so I was, when we founded that company, I was the initial CEO for about 18 months. And so I'd gone through a funding round before of making a ton of mistakes as, you know, all kind of learning, a really steep learning curve, I'll call it, <laughs> about how to get these technologies out of um, university and, and really um, wrap a commercial shape around them. And so when I came to Elementary, I had already kind of learned some of those skills. You face all these learning curves in every direction, the IP situation, how to build your initial team, how to get the technology out of university, how to approach and talk to investors, how to build a capital strategy in the plan. And there's just so many learning curves to um, this process. And so you just have to be intensely curious about it and get great mentors who have done it before. So in answer to your question, the kind of the key steps were, we have a really supportive tech transfer office at our university who have been, you know, they call themselves the first and friendliest investor, and they really are. And they've been hugely enabling. That's Auckland Uni Services. So they were our, our key partners. And they also have a network of investors who like to invest in early stage deep tech companies out of universities. And so with their networks and their support, um, we were able to uh, raise a uh, kind of a seed round with a great investor called IP Group. That really got us going and a couple of other great New Zealand partners. And after that, um, you know, we built towards a Series A that we did about a year ago. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a, a really exciting and but uh, the key word is learning just constantly uh, about how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Taking advantage of the resources that you have available. It's amazing that you have a, a good technology transfer office and that you were able to you know, take advantage of the services that they have to offer. But at the same time, you also had your own experience. And so uh, it kind of things worked out very well. I like that. Um, so tell us a little bit in more detail about the product, the actual product and how it works. So I've seen it, it you put it on the abdomen, 
but I'm guessing there's a lot of noise coming from the heart and maybe from uh, abdominal wall musculature and all that kind of stuff. How does it work and how does it cancel out the noise? Yeah, key question. Really good question. So, you know, the gut electrical activity is about 100 times weaker than the heart and it's really slow. They, they call them slow waves for a reason. They're slow in velocity and they're slow in frequency. And so picking up these signals is extremely challenging, which is why, you know, this idea is not new. It's been around 100 years, 100 years exactly this year since this field was kind of conceived by this guy called Walter Alvarez 100 years ago. And so people have tried for a long time. And really the breakthrough for us has been just rigorous attention to detail across every component of the device and in designing it in such a way that you extract maximally every last bit of signal you possibly can and eliminate as much noise as possible. And so the, the device has been thought through in that way. So what it is, is it's a non-invasive wearable and it's got a, a flexible or conformable sensor array that sticks to the skin with 64 electrodes on it. It's very high resolution and it's high resolution because we really want to extract that data that we can out and also build maps. And then it's got a wearable component that clips on to the stretchable electrode directly so that we eliminate that tangle of wires. And that was one of the breakthroughs was getting away from all this tangle of wires and cables and instead just screen printing everything using kind of modern conductive inks and then clipping on the, um, the electrode connectors so that we could do away with the cumbersome nature of, of a lot of electronic technology. And then we built an app and the app is actually equally important as the device. And the app does two things. It controls the device for the clinician, but it also allows the patient to enter their symptoms. And patients love this. It's very validating for them to get a very rich symptom profile. It's robustly validated, so we know it's a reliable patient-reported outcome. And when the clinician gets the report out of the cloud, they get the electrical activity of the gut side by side with the symptom activity, and they put them together to, to help their diagnosis. And often, um, it, sometimes it's more the electrical activity that helps. And another time, it might be just purely the symptom profile that we're able to put patients into different categories and comparing the two. And so really, it solves that need of understanding what's causing chronic gut symptoms for these, these patients who often feel quite neglected in the medical space because, you know, it's been such a difficult problem to, to understand what's driving these symptoms. Nice. You know, I think it's it's revolutionary for sure, the amount of information that you could get from this. But, you know, I, I was looking at this, I was reading about it, and I saw you guys have, have published a lot of research about it. But I, I think there's has been a delay in, in pickup and in, in conversion. Uh, physicians have, have not widely used this so far. And I'm guessing there are limitations in in regards to particularly how much education the clinician needs before they can use this in a way that is helpful for them and for their patients, but also how much education it requires for the clinician, not just to know how to use it, but to know how to answer questions that their patients will come back to them with. So how have you guys dealt with that? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first thing is it's relatively new. It only had its first FDA clearance about six months ago. But in answer to your question, we think about it like the healthcare system has an immune system to new technologies. And that's an important function of healthcare. And that immune system has many parts. It has the regulatory and the billing. It has, oh, sorry, the regulatory, it has the reimbursement and the billing. 
it has the trust, it has the clinical evidence, it has you know, the compatibility with other tests. And if you've alluded to as well, education and training, there's many parts of this immune system to new technologies. And sometimes that immune system is really important to weed out technologies that are, are not helpful to patients and doctors that people might be pushing. But other times it can be a real obstacle to getting new technologies into a care where they can make a huge difference. And so we see that as just a natural part of innovation in this space. It's complex, it's multi-sided, there's multi, multiple players, patients, doctors, providers. And so you've, you've really got to um, analyze that immune system very carefully and find out where it's helpful and where you can meet barriers and overcome them. A very experienced CEO of a, of a medical device company told me that he sees it takes about five years for most technologies to break through this. And even in the best hands, it can be difficult to accelerate. But we've been very excited that uh, there has been a lot of enthusiasm, especially initially by uh, motility specialists who see a lot of these patients to start using this technology because of the huge gap there is in understanding what's happening to these patients they're seeing regularly. That's an amazing analogy, uh, the immune system analogy. I absolutely love that. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit about what information does the allometry test provide that is different from what we already have available? So, so far, when I think about motility in a gastric, in the stomach in particular, I think about a gastric emptying study, which is quite limited. What else does the allometry test provide? Yeah, so gastric emptying has been under a lot of pressure lately. There was a very big study last year showing that it is quite unreliable. So if you take a group of patients with delayed gastric emptying or normal and you test them again almost a year later, you find 40% of them has changed categories. So um, that tells you there's a bit of a problem. And the second problem is it's not sensitive for neuromuscular disorders. It's a very general test. And I think when it's normal, it's not very useful. When it's delayed, sometimes that can be a little bit helpful. So it's, it's really, um, there's a huge diagnostic gap. The current situation in this field is that there's been some great research that have pinned down multiple potential causes of gastric symptoms. And these symptoms are really common. 10% of the US population would have some gastric symptoms regularly. And the causes come from multiple sides. They can be neuromuscular disorders of the stomach where that electrical apparatus is damaged. They can be hypersensitivities that can come after infections of the gut. They can be pyloric problems or outflow valve. Or they can be gut brain, which is incredibly common with anxiety and stress people are under. That can also manifest with these symptoms, among other causes related to inflammation and so on. And we view all of these causes as correct. And what we're able to do is to do our test with the electrophysiology and the symptom profiling and put patients into categories of where each one of these causes is more likely to happen. And we're particularly strong at diagnosing gastric neuromuscular disorders. Seeing about a third of patients with chronic nausea and vomiting, we're able to diagnose a specific phenotype where they have damaged stomach conduction systems. And then we're also very strong at diagnosing which patients are more likely to have gut brain or hypersensitivity problems from normal electrophysiology, but specific symptom profiles that we know correlate very well with each of these um, findings. And that's where we are at the moment. And over time, we're layering additional features to the test that will hopefully uh, pin down additional what we call phenotypes in order to guide specific care pathways. So overall, it's about delivering, moving from guesswork and trial and error to personalized care and personalized treatment that hopefully gets patients off this diagnostic treadmill that they're currently on. 
Nice. I think uh, every gastroenterologist has run across um, that patient who has a label of uh, gastroparesis and then they do a gastric emptying study that turns out to be negative or have seen conflicted gastric emptying studies on, on different patients. I completely agree with that. So it sounds like mostly thus far, what this test provides is the ability to differentiate neuromuscular disorders of the stomach versus brain gut disorders of the stomach. And that's at least the two big categories for now. Yes. So let me ask you, in terms of the patient experience, how does the test get done? Is it done in office or does the patient take this home? Is it more like a Holter monitor, for example, in cardiology, or is it more like an EKG? Yeah, so maybe this is an important learning point for any innovators out there. There's a big um, regulatory gap between doing a test in a hospital or a controlled clinical environment and doing it at home. When you have a patient at home, it's like the Wild West. Anything happens, they're not under medical supervision. They've got their dog crawling over them. They've got moving around, looking after the kids, whatever else they're doing. And it's very hard to have a controlled setting, especially when there's a lot of noise to contend with. And so we've been very deliberate about the initial test. This is our product being done in a controlled clinical environment um, rather than moving straight to a remote care setting, which is super attractive and something we may do in future, but is um, a big step to go from A to B. And we've, so we've developed this very controlled test, which um, is highly regimented through the app, the way it's done. There's multiple checks on the quality. And it's done in a, in a clinical environment. And it's very similar to a gastric emptying test in the time. It takes about four hours. And it's a, the experience for the patient is a little bit, we say, like taking a, a business class flight somewhere. You're kind of in a recliner chair. You're in a quiet setting. You can watch a movie, do some work on a laptop, whatever. But you're in one place for about four hours unless you're getting up to go to the bathroom and, and come back and have some comfort breaks. And yeah, so overall, it's been very well received by patients. What they love is it's non-invasive because a lot of GI tests, uh, of course, involve tubes and radiation and things. So um, it's really nice to be in a non-invasive space in order to have a great experience for the patient. Great. I, something that just popped into my head is, <laughs> have you noticed a difference in uh, results if the patient, like depending on the type of movie the patient is watching, for example? Someone did a great study on this. <laughs> it did show that gastric activity can change with uh, disgust and with, um, you know, violence and that kind of thing. So there's, there's actually data on this. And we, we say it should be a calm <laughs> movie for that reason. So yes. That's a good insight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the stuff way more sensitive to heart than stress. I'd say, you know, like we we know the heart's very reactive to stress. The stomach is way more reactive to stress. It will shut down if there's if there's a stress or the sympathetic nervous system is running. I mean, you would expect that, right? Everybody' expression is, "I feel it in my gut," right? So people feel things in their gut, and it's 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 a real feeling. Yeah. Um, okay, so. One of the most difficult questions for medical technology, especially diagnostic technology, is, um, you know, who's going to pay for it, right? So um, the, the payer problem, um, how have you guys handled that so far? Yeah, this is um, really important and really complex. And, you know, at, in, in the US, it's even, it's, it's, you know, it's a maze. And you need a spirit guide who's done it before or you have little to no chance. And so we've got two or three great, great consultants who we rely on to build a strategy. 
And because you're a new technology, um, this is one of the key kind of catch-22s you're in, in that you've, you can deliver improved patient care, but they can't pay with it. They want to use it. They want to bill for it. And the insurance company says no. Mm-hmm. And so this is um, just, again, you've just got to accept the fact that if you're innovating, this is one of the barriers that you're going to strike and plan for it early. And so the first thing we did in the company was we got a reimbursement plan. That was almost the first thing we did before spinning out the company, just to see what the path was going to be. And I'll tell you, that informed everything about the test, you know, um, down to the way we designed it or, you know, the kind of messaging or the naming and everything was um, guided in part by this need to overcome at some point this barrier. So we've just, um, you know, we're in the process of applying for codes and um, I I will avoid the technical detail for your listeners, but, um, you know, we're applying for new codes and we're going through the billing process at the moment. But here's the number one insight I have as a clinical innovator is that if you are useful as your product, if you're improving care, and if you've got good health economic data, then you will succeed eventually. Once you grind away at it, you will succeed. And so... You know, you can't BS your way through this is kind of what I'm trying to say, is that this immune system will find you out if if you're not useful. And, you know, that's been a bit of a graveyard for technologies in the GI space um, who have admirable technologies, really great ideas, have really stumbled at this hurdle. And so we have been laser focused on proving clinical validity and health economics, value-based outcomes. And... We're, that's still a work in progress, but that's where our focus is a lot of the time in order to get through this step. That's great. I mean, I love how how aware you are of of this uh, quote unquote immune system and and how prepared you have been since the beginning. Uh, I think there's there's a lot to learn from that. Um, okay, so let me ask you: If I wanted to use the allometry test tomorrow. Do I have enough time to learn how to use it and how to interpret it by then? Or do I need a little bit more time than that? Yeah, so there is an onboarding process that can be done um, with a patient. We, we've developed a series of videos, 20 of them one minute long, to learn how to run the test. So running the test can be done in a day with a little bit of onboarding from one of our specialists. We really like to do it in person because we've noticed small things add up to make a big difference. And that's right the way through the product, including the onboarding and the technical process. And so we, we like to do that on per, in person, but once you've done it, you know, that takes a day and then yes, you can get straight underway. After that, you, the second learning phase comes down to interpreting the data. I think there's a lot that is instinctive to clinicians. They relate it to ECG. They know the symptoms that they're dealing with. And so there are a lot of parallels that enable them to pick that up pretty quickly. And the other thing we've done um, to make it easy is to have a reference range available for them so that they can pick up the test metrics and objectively map them to a normal population. And that was one of the first things that we we found clinicians demanded. Otherwise, they're in the dark about what an individual patient needs. Of course, uh, yeah, so we've been able to do that, which was non-trivial amount of work. But pretty satisfied with that one. Yeah, I, I feel like this is a very common thing is clinicians want a number. They're like, yeah, I want a number. If it's higher, I know this. If it's lower, I know that. That's it. Yeah. So <laughs> I understand that that particular challenge. You know, I, I think we talked a lot about the actual allometry test, but going through your um, website and data, I saw 
that you guys are launching Elementary AI, but there isn't that much information about that. And I wanted to hear the scoop from you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, AI is fascinating, isn't it? You know, the, the futurists have been telling us that AI has been lurking under the water, getting exponentially better all the time. And people have been in this zone of um, complacency or, or zone of disappointment, depending on your point of view, or zone of boredom. And then all of a sudden, it's just popped out into the zone of surprise, which they told us would happen. But we've seen it really in the last three months, particularly, and it's on everybody's lips. And it's just amazing that people think, wow, this actually works. You know, it's actually a game changer. Um, and I think not just a game, it's a game changer for humanity. It's it's really is. It's it's one of the great cultural transformations that's about to occur from AI. There's no doubt. And so, you know, we've always been super interested in this space. And the way we've set up the company is around data and AI by having cloud-based capture and having very careful legal protections and um Agree, agreements in place so that we can use that data for AI. We're not looking to sell it. We're looking to train and learn and improve the clinical system from it. And we build this platform we call Adam, the Elementary Data Management Platform. And we bank with every, everything that we get from a test. And we have an awesome algorithm team who are building um, AI capabilities from that Adam platform. So at the moment, you know, it's just accruing enough data such that the AI can be useful. It's easy to do bad AI on a small number, small training sets, and, um, you know, it turn out to be useless. But we've been very deliberate at the moment. The product does not include AI. It's algorithm-driven. But um, the capabilities are just showing for us now. And the first things we're doing with it are things like improving the test quality, um, the noise eradication, just doubling down on that quality again that's so important for this product. But then, you know, the sky's the limit about where we take this in terms of the capabilities of AI more generally. I won't talk specifically about what we're doing, but you can think generally about um, biomarker prediction. You can think about mapping um, certain things that are not easy to see in the data by eye, where it's symptoms to electrical patterns, to demographics, and building complex models in neural networks or using machine learning techniques in order to um, implement a better clinical product. And that's the, that's the road we've been committed to since day one and the conception of how we formed this company. And it's really exciting to see where AI is going. The real unknown, and I think all doctors are, will be grappling with this and all innovators in the space are suddenly grappling with this, is what is the, what is the delivery to the patient look like? You know, like we're focused, our customer is the GI our doctor, but there's a lot of... Um, things happening at the, the patient, almost the consumer end of the spectrum at the moment. And how's that going to change the job we do as clinicians or interact with it is really a very interesting open question. Absolutely. I I completely agree. I think it's it's amazing that you guys are already working on this. And I do agree. I think, you know, there's something that I've heard multiple times, uh, which is AI will not replace physicians, but physicians who no AI will replace physicians who don't. And I think it's the same way with health tech companies. Um, those who catch up are, are going to survive and those who don't um, are unfortunately going to be left behind. And so you guys, I think, are doing the right thing by starting to work on this uh, so early on. So, you know, another thing that's also mentioned on the website, but there's not much information about it out there is colonic allometry. And, you know, I, I was looking at this, I know it's probably early research stages, but 
it's really interesting. I wanted to get your take on it because, you know, the way I'm imagining this is it's going to be a lot more difficult. The stomach is, it's not completely isolated in its location, but its anatomy is a little more clearer than the colon. Uh, and there may not be as much small bowel in the picture. And so I, I just wanted to hear your kind of your take on colonic allometry. Yeah, you're exactly right. The colon is a complex beast. The stomach's a, a good organ. It's well behaved. It sits in the same place and it, it does a fairly boring thing. It's always electrically active and it's, it's pretty much doing the same. It's contractions are turning on and off and there's some variations, but the colon's completely different. It has eight different patterns. Some are neurally driven, some are electrically driven, some both. And some things it only does once a day. And sometimes you'll eat a meal and then it does a whole lot of stuff and stops. And so first of all, the, the variety of clonic behaviors is dramatically different. And then the anatomy is, is much more unwieldy. It's larger, it's, um, it's variable. And, and so it's a very challenging organ to study. And I have deep experience in this because I'm both a colorectal surgeon, but I've done a huge number of clonic manometry research studies with high resolution techniques. So we, we know the challenges of the colon maybe more than anyone. But there's opportunities that are just completely untapped in the colon. It's a really interesting organ. And the biggest one that I've always been searching for in my research career is this idea of a rectosigmoid break that's very critical for disorders that are poorly understood, like incontinence and the role that sacral neuromodulation has in incontinence, but also in constipation um, and in postoperative disorders like anterior resection syndrome. And so we've been building the clinical base to understand, again, what is the ground truth that you're going for in these clinical disorders first. And then thinking at the moment, still a big R and a little D perhaps, about you know um, what role can a non-invasive technology fill that has a clinical need? And that's the key point. What is the clinical use case in the colon that we're still exploring and trying to pin down? Because we know we can achieve certain things with the technology, but where does it interface with clinical practice in a meaningful way that changes care is the big question at the moment. But there's something there. And if we don't do it, others will for sure eventually work that out and crack that nut because it's such an interesting one with a huge amount of the population affected by these disorders. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you may be able to discern the information that you need from segmental monitoring of the colon rather than monitoring the entire organ all at once, <laughs> but rather pick in a certain area, right? maybe you said rectosigmoid or something like that, um, rather than looking at the entire organ all at once? Yeah, I'm biased because I'm a colorectal surgeon, but yes, I'm particularly interested in that part of the colon. Um, but there's other use cases in other parts, but yes, that's right. Maybe zoning in on certain areas for certain disorders is more useful than trying to do the whole thing at once. So just a general question that I ask everyone that comes on the show, what has been the biggest obstacle, uh, the most challenging obstacle that you've had to overcome so far? Oh, that's a good question. There's so many. Um, look, I think the, the most difficult thing and the area where we've been most successful in elementary has been gathering an A-team around you who care and um, are really invested in the idea and the vision of your company. And we're so lucky to have that, but it's it's a really difficult thing to achieve. And, you know, the, the, the A players who really excel 
are just transformative to your company, especially in the earliest stages when you're trying to build an innovative company. Having awesome people around you who you love working with and who just um, really are independently motivated and excellent is the most transformative thing that you can do. And so um, building that first team is, is the hardest thing because that is also the biggest lever to success. And it's an area where, where I'm just extremely fortunate um, to work with great people. That's absolutely important. Your team can either make or break the company. And I think you need people that you can lean on and that are, are willing to do the work, not just willing to do the work, but want to do the work. Like you said, they're passionate about it. Um, so what is the lesson that you've learned from this experience so far? If you had to pick just one lesson, what would that be? Um... I would say the value of a co-founder. Um, it's it's a difficult road, and it can be a lonely road, and you you really need support, but also someone who complements your skill set. And I think having a co-founder who complements me is is just the biggest enabler um, to make it possible. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But that would be the the biggest learning point. If you go it alone, you've got a lot on your shoulders. That's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Differentiation is is really important. Specialization is really important. You know, as a physician and researcher, you 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 could probably go down that route and and try developing the hardware yourself, but you'd you'd be losing a lot of advantage. Yeah. Um. So, Greg, any questions for me? Yeah. Um. Interesting question. I wasn't expecting it. Um, why, why do you do this podcast? You know, um, <laughs> I, I'm interested in, in what you're hoping to educate. The, the I, I love it. I love this space and there's not many people talking about it. And I just want to say congratulations for doing it because it's so important to, to kind of get this knowledge out there and get people excited about it. As I said, found a market fit. We need more innovators in this space. So yeah, I'm, I'm just interested in, in, and that from you, like, um, what's your vision for the podcast? And I'm excited about it. I, I guess that's why you're doing it, but interested to hear. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I honestly, I keep telling people, um, the podcast is born out of frustration. Um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is, um, you know, I, I noticed as a gastroenterologist, as someone who works with medical devices all the time, whether it's endoscopes or whatever else we use in the endoscopy suite, um, I've noticed that there are a lot of fantastic ideas that people come up with um, in everyday life, but those ideas never go anywhere. And I'm the kind of person who asks that question, like, why? Why did that idea not go anywhere? Um, and whenever I've asked that question, I've always found that the answer was that people don't know how to take these their ideas um, to to the point where they could be actually implemented. And that knowledge gap was was a it was a very frustrating thing for me. And I noticed that nowhere in my medical school, in my medical training, whether it's in residency or fellowship, was I actually um, instructed on this. Nobody taught us how to perform innovation in medicine. Um, and so it, it, that was a very big driver, um, to why I will, you know, started looking into this is 
I wanted to learn. And then I thought that if I was going to learn this, there are probably a lot of other people out there that are thinking the same thing. So I might as well share what I learned with everybody else. But also at the same time, I also noticed another thing that I believe is a big problem um, in medicine these days or in medical education and training in general. Um, and it's that throughout my medical training, the overarching thing that I was taught about our relationship with the industry was that we should always be very skeptical. We should be very careful um, about dealing with the industry. Um, we're always taught about, you know, conflict of interest. And th there's there's this fear that I, I sensed in myself when I started talking to device techs and I started having this anxiety about am I am I is it OK that I'm doing this? Um, and I feel like that culture is detrimental, um, especially for people who want to contribute um, in in a way or another to device manufacturing or, you know, to working to improve um, our healthcare products in general. And so one of the other reasons why I started this podcast was I wanted to introduce physicians to the side of the industry that is actually exciting and and, you know, to people like you who are, in fact, physicians themselves and, and who built these companies because they care um, and that it's not, you know, it's not always the right thing to be scared um, and, and worried when interacting with the industry. But rather, sometimes we should embrace it and, and we should partner up um, to try and, and build the best products possible for our patients. Well, yeah, I really enjoyed listening to that. It really resonated with me 100%. And I can tell you that I feel that building a company is, you know, one of the best ways to make an impact in the world. And, you know, as you said, we have to embrace industry. We have to have our, um, you know, our eyes wide open as, as physicians. But at the same time, there's so many great engineers out there who want to make a difference to patients. And between us, we can have this impact on a huge number of huge number of patients compared to what we can in our individual day, daily lives as a physician by trying to build better solutions that scale. And then you can make a lever that will hopefully make a difference to patients all around the world. So I completely agree with what you said. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I think, I think we're, we're on the right path. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, Greg. So what's the best place for folks out there to learn about allometry? Yeah, our website, or just reach out if you're interested. Um, we have a great team, including team in the US. Um, and we have a clinical evidence portal that's expanding all the time. There's a lot coming. Um, yeah, so yeah, just reach out and communicate with us and we'll get back to you. So it's nice to be on your show and to be able to, to make a pitch for that as well. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. All right. Uh, thank you, Greg. I think we're out of time. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, on the show. And I had a lot of fun uh, on this conversation. And I hope to have you again in the future. Yeah, thank you. And good luck with your, with your podcast. And thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That concludes this episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. And I hope you enjoyed listening. Subscribe, rate us, and please leave a review as it helps us create additional content.